Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. What you're about to hear is a 40-minute preview from our new podcast series about the Freemasonic history of the United States. This is from part two of three from an episode titled Anti-Masonry, Prince Hall, Joseph Smith, and Albert Pike. Now in this 40-minute preview you're about to hear, and I should state that the entire episode is four hours and 51 minutes long, and that's just for part two. The preview that you're about to hear from this episode goes into the origin of the anti-Masonic party in the United States. And the anti-Masonic party was technically the very first third political party in the United States. And the anti-Masonic party is also responsible for the idea of a political convention that nominates a candidate. The Democrats and Republicans copied this model later on. You're going to hear the story of William Morgan and what happened to him resulted in what we know today as the anti-Masonic movement in the United States in the early 1800s. And if you want access to this full episode, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of ours at patreon.com slash Radio for as little as $5 a month. Thanks. William Morgan was a man born in Culpeper, Virginia, from a poor family in 1774, two years before the Revolution. He built himself up as a teenager, apprenticing as a stonecutter, and then later a bricklayer. After saving up enough money, he opened up his own shop in Richmond. Not much is known about Morgan's early life, except that he used to tell people he was a captain in the War of 1812. But this hasn't been confirmed by historians, perhaps an early sign that Morgan wanted to portray himself as an important person for more means than he actually had. And perhaps a little social engineering helped here and there to establish credibility among higher society people in town. October 1819, when Morgan was only 45 years old, he married 19-year-old Lucinda Pendleton, with whom he had two children, Lucinda Wesley Morgan and Thomas Jefferson Morgan, of course, named after the third president of the United States, whose gravestone is an Egyptian obelisk. Morgan relocated his wife and two children to Toronto, and then later to York, Canada, where he opened up his own brewery. This was at this point the best time in Morgan's life. Even though he's in his mid-40s, he was able to now provide for his own family with his new trade. This business worked well for his situation at the time. He was by no means a rich or wealthy man. He would have been considered poor but he was still able to support his wife and two children and gained a decent reputation in town. 
Unfortunately, this changed overnight when Morgan's brewery building had burned completely to the ground in a mysterious fire. A fire that didn't just decimate Morgan and his family into total poverty, but it also maybe instilled in him a sense of paranoia. The reason I say mysterious is because Morgan believed that someone had deliberately burnt it down, perhaps a local competitor. This unfortunate series of events forced him and his family to relocate again, this time to Rochester, New York. Rochester at the time was a bustling economic hub for people desperate for work. Morgan found himself unable to find consistent work in Rochester, but Morgan got wind of a small town called Batavia, New York, and he heard about all the new construction happening there. He figured his experience as a stonecutter and a bricklayer could sustain him if he moved his family to Batavia. It was at this time that Morgan took a genuine interest in speculative masonry, actual Freemasonry, not just freestone masonry or stonemasonry, which was now his trade again. While living in Batavia in 1825, Morgan visited the Leroy's Western Star Chapter Number 33 Freemasonic Lodge in Leroy, New York, which would have been about an hour away by horseback or four hours on foot. He told the Masons in the Leroy Lodge that he already obtained his Master Mason degree from a lodge in Canada, and that he was also a member already of the Rochester Lodge. That wasn't actually true. He never joined the Rochester Lodge. Since telephones didn't exist at the time, the Masons at Leroy couldn't just call up the Rochester Lodge and vouch for his membership. Rochester was three hours away by horseback and eight hours away on foot. They'd have to send a letter to the Rochester Lodge, which apparently they eventually did. But until they heard back, Morgan was able to obtain his Royal Arch degree of Freemasonry from the Leroy Lodge. Once the Leroy Lodge members realized he was making up his Masonic membership when they heard back from Rochester, they excommunicated him from the Lodge. Morgan, feeling defeated and maybe embarrassed, this still didn't stop Morgan from trying his ploy again in his own town of Batavia, which had just opened a Masonic Lodge in 1826. Keep in mind that Morgan was trying to feed his family, and he had returned to a craft that didn't pay very well at the time that he had initially started on when he was only a teenager. But now a man in his early 50s, Morgan was tired. It's said that Morgan resorted to heavy drinking during this time to bury his depression and feelings of inadequacy. So, wouldn't it make sense that joining the Freemasons could give someone like Morgan a leg up in society? Boost in confidence, perhaps? Establish his standing in the local community that he wasn't merely just a poor man, but a man of class and character. A man who lives by the square. A Freemason. Morgan's mistake was lying to the Freemasons in the first place. 
a mistake that he would later find out was an unforgivable offense. Morgan used social engineering skills to convince a Masonic Lodge who was experienced enough to get a Royal Arch degree. I think this shows that Morgan wasn't just a typical con artist or social engineer, but someone who actually studied Freemasonry. He named his child after Thomas Jefferson. In some ways, Morgan probably even revered Freemasonry and invested in its spiritual practices. But none of that mattered at this point because his membership started based on a lie. Batavia Masons were also fooled by Morgan's supposed Masonic credentials and signed him up as one of their very first members when they opened their lodge. Eventually, the Batavia Masons got word via the Leroy Lodge that Morgan was lying about his credentials. Batavia quickly banned Morgan from their lodge, and it eventually became clear to Morgan that he had blown up his facade. And unless he relocated again, perhaps somewhere else, maybe far away, by angering the local Masons, he might have even hurt his chances at establishing wealth for his family in the area. This sent Morgan into a bitter rage, but not just a drunken rage where he was defeated, disappeared into historical obscurity. This sent Morgan into sort of a calculated rage that he channeled into an ingenious strategy, really. A strategy that was almost a game of chicken with the local Freemasons. You would think at that time someone would be so ashamed of having been caught for lying about their Masonic credentials. But he made them a proposal. Morgan wasn't like other men. Morgan went back to the Batavia Lodge and confronted the Masons there. And he told them, I will reveal your secrets if you do not make me a member. I will publish your Masonic secrets, not just of this lodge, but of the rituals and the special codes and the special handshakes. I will publish it if you do not grant me membership as a Mason in your lodge. Apparently, these Batavia Masons gave him the brush off and essentially told him to go fuck himself. They didn't care. Because, I guess at the time, they believed that William Morgan was lying about all his Masonic credentials. But, if you remember what I just told you, that apparently he did receive his Royal Arch degree based on a lie in Leroy. Morgan was obviously clearly familiar with Freemasonry enough to scam two Masonic lodges at this point into believing that he was an experienced Freemason. And maybe the Masons called his bluff. Maybe they didn't think a man who was a stonecutter who had just relocated his family, a man of not very much wealth, was capable of anything seriously threatening to the Freemasonic fraternity. But this quickly changed when it was discovered that Morgan was actually soliciting local publishers and trying to cut deals with them on an entire book, or rather a pamphlet, 
revealing all these Masonic secrets. At this point, a few so-called overzealous Freemasons threatened Morgan with bodily harm. They also told him that they would make sure that no copies of that book were released. This all seems rather ominous, but somehow Morgan was not afraid, at least not at this point. And it should be stated also that Morgan had already tried to join York Lodges of the York Rite. The Scottish Rite, as we know it in Freemasonry, had just been formally founded. And at the time, Blue Lodges were already very well known in the United States. Most people were even culturally aware of the way Masons looked during the rituals in Blue Lodges and some of the degrees in Blue Lodges. Blue Lodges referred to regular Masonic Lodges that had the first three degrees. York Lodges had many more degrees, and as we'll talk about later, Scottish Rite Lodges have 33 degrees. But it still must be stated that even at this time, it must have been really sensitive still for anybody to want to release a book just covering the regular Blue Lodge Masonic rituals, which is what it appears that William Morgan's book was revealing. Morgan's book already had a title. It was going to be called Illustrations of Masonry. And it wasn't just going to be a bunch of textual breakdowns of Masonic secret degrees, their rituals, and their work in detail. It was also going to have illustrations of all their secret rituals, all their secret attire. In late August 1826, Morgan announced that a local newspaper publisher, David Cade Miller, had given him a sizable advance for this expose. David Cade Miller himself is said to have received the entered apprentice degree, the first degree of Freemasonry, in a local Batavia lodge. But at this point, he had been stopped by the local Batavia lodge members from any further advancement in this lodge because of the misdeeds by Morgan and because of this learned collaboration between the two. David Cade Miller had stake in a printing press. He wasn't just a distributor. The deal was that Morgan was promised one-fourth of the profits. Morgan's landlord, John Davids, and another man named Russell Dyer entered into a $500,000 penal bond with Morgan to guarantee its publication. This speaks to the financial motivations Morgan could have had for wanting so desperately to publish these Masonic secrets. As someone who seemed to have reverence and appreciation for Masonry to get the Royal Arch degree at Leroy Lodge, that's probably the most likely motive, especially after blowing his reputation in town and having to resort to stone-cutting and bricklaying in his mid-fifties. Now I'm going to be reconstructing the timeline of what happened to William Morgan next, using what I believe to be the earliest source material that's probably the most accurate depiction of actually what happened to him and what happened to 
the people involved and what happened to him. So you might read some differing accounts. Some of the details are different. Some of the, the timelines are different in the differing accounts of William Morgan you read about in different books, different free Masonic history books, especially. So I am actually sort of reconstructing different details using the timeline from a book based on a, a trial. At first, the local Batavia Lodge made their distaste and objections to Morgan publicly known by publishing an advertisement denouncing Morgan in the local newspaper. They denounced him for breaking his Masonic word by authoring the book. Never forget September 11th, 1826. From the pamphlet titled The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan, published in 1827, it says, On the 7th of September, a convention of Masonic delegates representing six royal arch chapters was held at the House of Ganson in Stanford for the purpose, as was currently reported, of devising means for the suppression of the book. The result of their deliberations is necessarily unknown to the public. The evening of September 10th, 1826, Miller was at home at the time in his office slash residence, but he had gotten wind that a few overzealous Freemasons from the local lodge had threatened to burn down his printing press. Miller was prepared and had a militia of his own as security. David Miller was a colonel in the U.S. Army and took it very seriously when he heard these rumors. Just as expected, the Masons came down that evening, attempting to burn the printing press. They were chased away by this militia, but in addition to just ruining and burning down the printing press, these Masons wanted to make sure that no manuscripts existed and that no copies of it existed elsewhere. The book, The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan, says which invinced much previous preparation, was made to burn two houses in the village for their apparent purpose of destroying some printed sheets of the aforesaid book, in which house were sleeping 15 persons. The Masons weren't just overzealous enough to try to burn down a printing press. They also tried to burn down a house that had 15 people sleeping inside of it. Luckily, they were prevented. But Captain William Morgan, as he called himself, was very upset hearing this news. He wasn't pleased that this huge financial windfall for himself could be disrupted by these so-called overzealous Freemasons. On the morning of September 11th, 1826, about sunrise, William Morgan, standing at the scene of Colonel David C. Miller's printing press, 
decides, perhaps naively, to report the attempted arson to a local judge. Judge Tracy, who lived about nine minutes away by foot. William Morgan stood at the printing press located at 55 Main Street, Batavia, New York, where an MNT bank stands today. William Morgan decided to walk to Judge Tracy's house across town, which was at 209 East Main Street, which a YMCA now stands in the place of today in modern Batavia. And perhaps it was during Morgan's walk that maybe a little bit of fear started to set in. After all, the Masons had just not just tried to burn down a printing press, but were also willing to burn down a building with 15 people sleeping inside of it. Whether Morgan was just infiltrating the Masonic Lodge or not, he performed the Hiram Abiff ritual. And in this ritual, he agreed to what some people at the time called a blood oath, where if he revealed any Masonic secrets, his penalty would be death. Maybe Morgan previously didn't take this oath very seriously or even literally. As Captain Morgan walks up to the doorstep of Judge Tracy's house, he's grabbed. Perhaps in this moment, Morgan immediately realized that he should have brought his own militia, just like Colonel David C. Miller did the night before to protect his printing press. Captain William Morgan was forcibly seized and carried away by the local sheriff. He's taken into a stagecoach, which includes some local masons known by the names of Seymour, Holloway, Hayward, Howard, Cheeseboro, and Everton. Morgan must have immediately recognized some of these men as being his fellow brothers at the local Batavia Lodge, but also from the Leroy Lodge as well. Maybe this is when Morgan also realized the magnitude of the crime that he had committed against the Freemasons. The stagecoach takes him to Conaduaga, a trip that takes a couple of days. When he gets to the courthouse in Conaduagua, he's examined before Justice Chipman on the charge of stealing a shirt from a man named Kingsley for $2.61. The judge on its face believes this is a trumped-up charge for a man to travel multiple days by stagecoach by a local sheriff. Something seemed off to him, so he acquits Morgan. But this was a conspiracy to try to get Morgan in debtor's prison, a conspiracy by the local sheriffs and the local Freemasons. The plan was to put him in debtor's prison to prevent the publication of his book. But an additional charge of being in debt for another unpaid loan still remained. And Morgan, unfortunately, was awaiting to be tried for that charge. Miller, his business partner, 
got wind of this and went to jail to bail him out. But Morgan gets immediately rearrested right after being let out of jail on a new charge. This new charge was made by a man who was part of the posse of Masons collaborating with the local sheriff's department that originally arrested Morgan in the first place. This man named Cheeseboro demanded a warrant against Morgan for a sham tavern debt of $2. Another allegation of an unpaid debt for which judgment was immediately rendered and execution issued. Now, somehow the Masons had succeeded in getting him to stay in jail this time after their third attempt at sending him to debtor's prison, essentially. William Morgan was sent to the Conedogua County Jail, where he laid until nine o'clock in the evening of the next day, when several Freemasons, including a man named Lawson, visited the county jail while the jailer was away. The jailer left his wife to fulfill overnight duties at the jail. And somehow the Masons were able to coax her into releasing Morgan for a sum of money, sort of an under-the-table bail feed, they said. They convinced her they were his friends. Ostensibly from friendly motives, these Masons convinced the jailer's wife to release Morgan. Now I should stop here and say that this was the Masons' account of the story. But other accounts of the story say that the jailer himself was also a Freemason who was brothers with Freemasons Lawson and others who were part of this conspiracy, and that he simply allowed them to secure Morgan's release and then kidnap him. Another interesting coincidence is that while William Morgan was in jail in the Conedogua County Jail, he actually shared a cell with Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr. This information came from author Cheryl Bruno. It hasn't really been confirmed or unearthed what Joseph Smith was actually serving jail time for. Perhaps Morgan assumed his freedom again was thanks to his business partner, D.C. Miller. But he would soon find out he was walking into a trap because directly outside of the prison door, Morgan was violently seized again by Lawson and others in the presence of Mason, Sawyer, and Cheesebro. Morgan struggled and cried of murder. Apparently, Morgan yelled, Murder! 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 But was overpowered, gagged, and thrust into a coach which drew up on a signal from Sawyer. Multiple witnesses saw him in this coach, driven by a man, Mason, named Hubbard, and filled with other Masonic conspirators. This was the very last time William Morgan would ever be seen again. Many people, including a judge, ended up going to jail for the kidnapping of William Morgan. But nobody was ever able to prove that he was murdered. Although the rumors that he had been murdered became extraordinarily strong in the local community. And as we'll see nationwide, 
The general theory is that he went from Conteneguo up through Victor, then to Pittsford, and up to Rochester, New York. And then the Masons from New York ended up taking him to Fort Niagara, a symbolic military fort that was strategically important during the War of 1812. How did the Masons get access to a military fort? That's a good question. Nobody really knows. But probably because the military members that had access to that fort were also Freemasons. At Fort Niagara, the Masons historically claim that there was a meeting of New York Masons, and across the river, there was a meeting of Canadian Masons. They were trying to coordinate a deal with William Morgan. The deal that the Masons were content to give him $500 and 100 acres of land in Hamilton, Ontario. Instead of taking the land, the Masons claim he jumped on a ship and fled to Toronto and then to Montreal and then disappeared and relocated, abandoning his wife and two children. That's the official Masonic story of William Morgan. The court records show that several men were charged with the kidnapping of William Morgan and they were associated with Masonic lodges. There's no denying in the historical record that the Masons conspired to commit a crime to kidnap William Morgan and to try to burn down the printing presses. But there's a lot more to this story. The rumor that came out about what happened to William Morgan that night at Fort Niagara is as follows. Apparently many decades later, on a deathbed confession of one of the Masonic conspirators involved, he said that they kept Morgan in the Niagara Fort for seven days until September 19th. They kept him in the magazine of the Niagara Fort, which lined up with what anti-Masons had claimed about his kidnapping. And on this deathbed confession, this man says that Morgan was taken out to the Niagara River, exhausted and starving and sleep-deprived, but still alive. The Masons then wrapped him in heavy chains and threw him over the side to drown in the cold, dark, watery depths of the Niagara River. On September 12th, the day after Morgan's abduction, Mrs. Morgan, alarmed for her husband's safety, departed to make the journey to Conadagua with their infant daughter in tow. She had been contacted by two local Masons who played the role of good cop and told her that as long as she provided certain original manuscripts for Morgan's Masonic Secrets book that Morgan had asked her to keep safe, that they would take her to see Morgan and everything would be okay. After she agreed, the Masons essentially detained her. Halfway through the journey, her fear started to magnify and she realized that something was amiss that they weren't actually taking her to go see her husband, 
but instead were kidnapping her. She wasn't wrong. They never took her to see her husband as promised, but instead held her against her will for several days until Masons Ketchum and Ganson obtained the missing manuscripts. Ignorant of the fate of her own husband, the Masons then forced her to make the return journey by herself in the coach unprotected, a two-day journey, which for any woman in the 1800s would have been punishment in and of itself. At the same time this was happening, after Mrs. Morgan had been detained by these vigilante Freemasons, one Jesse French appeared in Batavia, attended with more than 50 men with clubs. I'm going to continue to read from the book published a year later, The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan. These 50 men with clubs, basically a Masonic lynch mob, forcibly seized William Morgan's business partner and publisher, David C. Miller, on a pretended criminal process issued by a justice of Leroy and carried him to Stafford, about four miles from Leroy, where he was detained till dark, locked up in a room over a door and guarded by five men armed with clubs. Here his friends in council at last found him, and finally, when brought before the justice, it appeared that the process was a civil suit brought by one Johns, but neither Johns nor French appeared to prosecute it or to declare the cause of action, and no warrant being returned, he was discharged. Nevertheless, French attempted afterward to re-arrest and detain him on the same warrant. Everything announcing that Miller had been doomed to share the fate of Morgan, and only escaping by the energy of his friends and the yielding up of the manuscripts by Mrs. Morgan. Such a series of outrages in which the fraternity seemed degraded into a lawless mob for the subversion of civil rights and personal liberty could not fail to alarm and arouse the people. Public meetings were held. In most of the towns and counties near the scene of action, addresses voted and committees of investigation appointed whom the meetings pledged themselves to protect from illegal violence. These inquiries have presented the public with a mass of facts which have tended to keep alive the popular feeling and to affect the conviction of some of the offenders. The original David C. Miller edition of Morgan's book was published in two different editions, once from his Batavia printing press in 1826, and it was immediately republished in Rochester, evidently by a publisher known as Thurlow Weed. It was continued to be reprinted four different times throughout 1827. Although it's not known how many of the Masonic secrets Morgan intended to reveal made it into his pamphlet. Mrs. Morgan had given up some of the manuscripts. But perhaps this was really threatening to the Freemasons, that all of their rituals and the way that they looked during these rituals and the costumes that they wore and their secret codes and handshakes and the way that their lodges operated were now fully exposed. 
But what really did happen to William Morgan? What were they doing with him for those seven days in Fort Niagara? Maybe a clue can be gleaned from the different blood oaths that Masons are required to take in their first three degrees. An illustration ran in one of Thurlow Weed's newspapers. William Morgan is pictured again blindfolded, but this time standing, surrounded by Masons with sharp daggers and knives. This resembles the Hiram Abiff third-degree ritual, where a candidate in Masonry is led to believe that he will be killed, and under the penalty of death, a Mason is supposed to recite to all of which I do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear without any hesitation, mental reservation, or secret evasion of mind in me whatsoever, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out, and with my body buried in the sands of the sea at low water mark, where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation of an entered apprentice, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having, my left breast torn open, my heart and vitals taken thence, and with my body given as a prey to the vultures of the air, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation of a fellow craft, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my body severed in twain, my bowels taken thence, and with my body burned to ashes, and the ashes thereof scattered to the four winds of heaven, that there remain neither track, trace, nor remembrance among man or masons of so vile and perjured a wretch as I should be, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation as a master mason. So help me, God, and make me steadfast, keep and perform the same. So mote it be. Thurlow Weed was extremely anti-Andrew Jackson at the time. He was a political man and had political aspirations, but he was also very influential in the press and what is known today as yellow journalism or sensationalism. But he seized on this real mystery, which by all accounts was a Masonic assassination of William Morgan. But in one of the illustrations, he portrayed William Morgan wearing a blindfold. This became a common theme in the William Morgan affair, as it became known, in the way it was portrayed. Similarly, to Paul Revere's infamous depiction of the Boston Massacre that helped kickstart the revolution, these illustrations in Thurlow Weed's newspapers helped tell the story of William Morgan. A year after his disappearance, William Morgan's business partner, Colonel David C. Miller, finally publishes William Morgan's book, Illustrations of Freemasonry. And it turns out that William Morgan wasn't just a slouch who stole these 
Masonic secrets off of another author or merely plagiarize an English writer. William Morgan's book, Illustrations of Masonry, shows that Morgan had patiently infiltrated masonry to such an extent that he became a thorough student of it. Now, whether he just did this as a spy with the intention of always releasing the secrets will always remain a mystery, but based on the actual content of his book, it was a truly explosive document that probably set back the secret aspect of Freemasonry for many decades. If you actually read the book yourself, you can understand why they would have been so infuriated and threatened by it. Because most of the things in the book stand up today of being factually accurate revelations of Masonic secrets, secret handshakes, secret codes, secret words, and secret occult rituals. Until Morgan's book, most of this stuff was in the realm of lore or urban legend, or told, as I said earlier, in traveling shows in the form of spooky, dramatized Masonic rituals. At the time, some of the Blue Lodge rituals and costumes were known to the public through other various earlier leaks. But William Morgan was also exposing a newer, more mysterious sect of Freemasonry that had extra degrees that people thought of as being even more spooky. York Masonry, the York Rite, which had a subsect in it called Royal Arch Masonry. Morgan's book is extremely accurate. I've just finished reading it myself, and I didn't find anything specific in it that was hyperbolic or even necessarily conspiratorial. So if you liked what you heard on that preview, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Radio. And by becoming a subscriber for as little as $5 a month, you get instant access to the full five-hour episode of this podcast you just heard a preview from. And in addition to that, you also get access to part one of our Freemasonic History episode, which is about four hours long. In total, this entire series, all three parts, will probably be about 12 hours long. It's quite ridiculous, I know, but we like to create a lot of content for our subscribers, and we really appreciate you guys for subscribing out there. So thanks for listening. Take care.